0: And welcome to Here We Stand.
1: I'm your regular host, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. It's May 23rd, and welcome to all of you. Now, that's, of course, going out to all you republic patriots in the land of Canada, formerly the so-called Dominion of Canada. And it's also going out especially to somebody we're going to talk about today, the acting governor general of Canada, who's really not only the head of state, but all powers are rolled The one. His name's Richard Wagner. We're going to be talking about him in a minute. and. For you newcomers, new listeners, we're here every Sunday, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, at the BBS Radio Network. You can follow our work, Republic of Kanata, that's K-A-N-A-T-A, republicofkanata.ca, and, of course, the important background for our movement at murderbydecree.com, which documents the history of planned genocide by church and state, by the Crown and the Vatican in Canada and elsewhere, the crime that really led to the necessity of the Republic. I'm going to be joined today with a fellow co-worker from England, and our theme is the close connection between political tyranny and genocide, something very relevant to people in this land. And my friend will be joining me in a few minutes, but I want to start with a few observations for some very important things. We're going to be mentioning today, of course, the ongoing attacks on our people across Canada and the world – You know, there have been reports recently of protesters in Halifax on the East Coast who were grabbed immediately by police as soon as they tried to hold a protest at the Citadel in downtown Halifax. Well, at the same time, we're getting reports of a lot worse than that on Indian reservations. And one of our friends, our fellow citizens, at the Tatasquayak Cree Indian Reservation in northern Manitoba, near Thompson, says that they're now all locked on the reservation. They can't get out even to get food unless they get that shot in their arm. That's from the government puppet chief, Doreen Spence, who ordered them all to do that. Well, we recognize now that this close connection between this kind of political tyranny and acts of genocide are inherent in our culture. I want to start with, um, and since it's tomorrow is what's known as Victoria Day in Canada, in autumn, It was that celebration we had. I remember as a kid, we used to always go out and light off firecrackers on this day to celebrate Queen Victoria. Well, I want to um, share a little anecdote about her that a lot of people don't know, and maybe after hearing this, you won't celebrate tomorrow. Queen Victoria was actually history's biggest and most successful drug dealer. She was also one of the least popular British monarchs who survived at least six assassination attempts. She wasn't the nicest person in the world either, if you recall her public comments about her own children, who she referred to as, quote, little nasty objects. Well, that wasn't her worst crime, despite how it affected her children, those love-deprived, screwed-up kids of hers who went on to sire the crowned heads of Europe who launched World War I against each other. You know, abused children will do that sort of thing. But, no, Vicky's real claim to fame was opium. Incredibly, in the Middle of the 19th century, the British-sponsored Chinese opium trade accounted for about a third of all the money poured into the British Empire. So Queen Vicky launched two wars against those those little heathens over in China for having the temerity to try cur- to curtail the opium addiction that was killing off their people. At one point, the Royal Navy was shelling coastal villages all over China to wipe out any cheeky Chinese who tried to defend their own Nation's sovereignty. As one British Admiral Admiral noted at the time, quote, "And the wogs seem oddly reluctant to bow before historical inevitability and the superior strain of our superior race. Yes, well, so our lovely Queen Victoria spent about a hundred thousand pounds or more to wipe out any Chinese people so she could rake in mega profits and wander her estates in the Highland. You still feel like celebrating Victoria Day, folks. <laughs> That was taken from my book, one of my 18 books, actually. It's called 1497 and So On, A History of White People in Canada or the Caucasian Healing Fund. And I'm going to talk about that a bit later. Now, of course, it's easy to pick on people who are dead, and especially people who are almost dead, like Elizabeth Windsor tottering in her octogenarian style on the throne over there in London. But I'm going to talk about people more close to home. And I mentioned him already. Richard Wagner, acting governor general. Now, for people who don't know, and this is especially surprising to Americans, uh, but there's only one person who runs the state in Canada. The acting head of state, the governor general appointed by the Queen, he can remove the government at any time. It's the old feudal system. Well, back in January, we did it one better in Canada. We actually reported the chief of the Supreme Court, chief justice of the Supreme Court of Canada, was then appointed acting governor general as well. So that's the judicial and the executive branches are all rolled into one person. He heads the Supreme Court. He's also the head minister of state. So if any of you folks are considering using the court system to protest or try to block COVID measures, forget it. It's the same guy running the courts is also running the state. And as just before the Parliament of Canada, which is pretty much a vestigial organ now, just before it disbanded itself at the start of the whole COVID measures, they passed a... Uh, Law which allowed King Richard I to collect any amount of taxes off any of you to any extent to cover the deliberate crashing of the Canadian economy at the behest of the Chinese so they can gobble up the pieces. So now King Richard can tax all of you as much as he likes, and there's no parliamentary oversight. Well, guess what, folks? That's exactly what sparked the English Revolution in 1649, which chopped off the head of the King of England. He was taxing people without parliamentary approval. Here we are back in the 17th century, and I can't forget the words passed by the an act of parliament in that time that deposed monarchy forever. It says, it is clear by scripture and the laws of England that monarchs are repugnant and opposed to divine law. Kings are man's creation, not God's, and they blaspheme the law by which God alone is man's sovereign. Therefore, this parliament hereby ordains that monarchy is dispensed with in its entirety, as the chief threat to the people's well-being. Well, that law stands, folks, and that's one of the bases of us declaring a republic. So moving right along, our topic, tyranny and genocide and how they work together. We mentioned already this ongoing genocide, the, one of the examples of which was the mass murder of over 60,000 little children in the Indian, so-called Indian residential school system for which nobody ever went to jail. Churches and government absolve themselves for it. That's part of what's at MurderByDecree.com. But the contrast of this system, I mentioned, you know, white protesters in Halifax get arrested. Native people on the reservations get starved out unless they have the shot. See, there's kind of two standards in a genocidal system. But it's a systemic and ongoing genocide, and that's the reality of what we're talking about. Now, you know, I'm going to play in a minute Voices of the Canadian Genocide. People who, and this is taken from our documentary from Unrepentant and all the, also the evidence we submitted to the International Common Law Court of Justice that forced the resignation of Pope Benedict in 2013 and convicted Queen Elizabeth and 28 others of crimes against humanity. You'll hear those voices in, in a minute, but don't forget these crimes that are describing came in because the Canadian government brought in laws such as prohibiting Indians from hiring lawyers or going to court bringing in mandatory sterilization laws, making it mandatory for little children to be locked up in these death camps called residential schools. These kinds of uh, measures, you know, preventing any kind of legal or political action, this political tyranny preceded the genocide, and this is our point. We're seeing the same thing today. Mandatory vaccinations have been the law in Canada since 1874 when it comes to aboriginal people. In the Indian Act, you cannot refuse medical treatment or shots, or you go to jail. I remember 20 years ago working on the streets of Vancouver, having Native women telling me that's exactly what happened. Their children were just seized from them because they wouldn't agree to have shots shoved in their arm by Health Canada. So this is the uh, the reality we're talking about. We're going to have uh, my friend Badria from England coming on to join in the commentary and the discussion about this today. But first, we're going to hear from voices of the Canadian Holocaust these eyewitnesses, survivors of the death camps called residential schools, and we'll be back after that.
2: Hello, this is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. On November 5th, history was made by the convening of the first International Common Law Court of Justice. This court was convened to judge the guilt of heads of state and heads of churches for crimes against humanity and for unspeakable crimes against children. The full proceedings of the opening session of this court can now be viewed online at www.itccs.org. But for your own edification and to promote the work of the court and the cause of justice, we have created this short sample of some of the key testimonies in this first session of the court. We ask you to post this sample online and especially share it with your local media, educators, and other sympathetic people. The second session of our court will convene during the third week in November, 2012. We ask you to keep posted for that at itccs.org. Thank you.
3: Irene Fable, I'm 75. I went to a residence and school in Moscow in 1941 to 1949. And I had a very, very rough life. I was mistreated in every way. as a young girl, she was seven years old. She was pregnant. And what they did, she had her baby. They they took the baby, wrapped it up in nice pink outfit, took it downstairs. I was in the kitchen with the nun for cooking supper. They took the baby into the, uh, what do you call that, where they make a fire and all that to heat up the school furnace room. They threw that little baby in there and burnt it alive. All you could hear was, that was it. Uh, you could smell them um, in you know, the flesh, cooking. Uh-uh. It's a big mistake when people say we were treated good. No way.
4: So, after my brother got better, he needed to go back to the mush hole. And we didn't go back for that next year. But it was some time after that, during the time that um, that we were out of school for the summer, that he had and we were gonna go back. And he told he said, Do you know what happened to all of those kids that were there at the Hall? He said, Do you remember that? And I said, Yeah. I said that our dorm was just full of girls. And he said, Yeah, so was ours full of boys. And he said, Um, did you uh do you remember do you know what happened to them? And I said, No. And he said, They called in the army and they and they took them to the army base and they and they shot them, they stood them all along this big hole, and they shot them and it was as as um when the bullets hit them, they fell into the into the um, hole and um and he said, when they were all done, he said those that that had hadn't fallen into the hole, uh, some of them were still alive, he said some of them were still alive. In the hole and he said they came along I want to say a bulldozer that what comes to my mind but I'm not really sure that my brother had said a bulldozer they came along with the big machine anyway and they and they shoved them all in that hole and covered it up and um and he says no. that's what happened to them and I must have been about 8, I guess, or 7 or 8, somewhere through there. Let's see, that must have been 43
0: or 44. Here we are, second day of the dig, near the mush hole. And this is an area about 100 yards from the school, where we found consistent bone samples. And these regular types of buttons, probably off a Well, clothing, obviously. But the interesting thing is here at the Glebe site, they're of the same style as if they're off a standard uniform or something. Could be a child's button off a school Mm -hmm. uniform.
4: scary. Finding those little skulls in there. What were those little skulls? Where did they come from?
1: Could you describe what they look like?
4: Tiny little ones. Two little skulls. Tiny baby ones.
0: And in here. I feel
4: that fear we had running upstairs to that door.
0: And uh, I spent five years in the, uh, what the Canadian government calls the residential schools, but really these were prisoner of war camps. I was one in the one called the Mohawk uh, Institute. Starved us, beat us, froze us. And uh, it was horrific there was no controls in the place kids were always getting beat up or being put through various torture uh, uh, rituals a lot of the kids were tortured in there they were made to hang off of hot pipes until uh, they couldn't hold on anymore and they just fell to the floor from the roof and uh, they were beaten whenever someone felt like it uh, made to hold on to electric fences.
4: And the ministry found out I was pregnant, and they told me to have an abortion. And after I have the abortion, to have a tubal ligation, so I won't have any more children. I said, if I didn't, didn't um, have a tubal ligation, then I would never see my daughter Patricia again.
5: My friend is going to burn 24 7, which was totally out of bounds. And, uh, and me and a friend uh, witnessed two uh, of the uh, sisters or brothers uh taken uh look, look like little bodies under uh white uh wrappings or white cloth and uh, put them into the uh uh put into the uh, furnace. And the Queen came and visited visited for about three days, uh two three days, I don't know how long it was. I
4: think it was about three days actually and a lot of children went missing there. Many children uh, that that weren't cooperative, um, like myself, uh, wasn't cooperative,
5: and they were put into uh, the uh, with the children who were sick with with uh, at the end of the uh, dormitory. They kept the sickies there, the ones who were sick with tuberculosis, and um, they they put me and my brother Ernie in with
4: the ones who were sick because, uh, because we would not come to The same
5: room with people who had TB, um, they didn't separate us.
4: Then we were forced to play with them. Their nuns made us play with those kids. We didn't want to get sick either, but they, they were forcing us to play with those kids. And also, they made some of them sleep with the other kids.
0: I would have loved to have seen the... Uh, the perpetrators are severely punished for all of this. And I would, the greatest thing I i would want to see is the Church of England get barred from practicing in Canada.
4: It's just insane, like you don't murder children and get away with it. And I work every day to protect children, it just really bothers me that, that so many of our children have been killed. And, and nothing's ever been done about it. Like, you read about it, and, and there's information on it all over the place, but n- nothing's ever been done about it. So why should these people, the churches and the government, and Indian Affairs, were all in on this as well, why should they get away with killing our children? It's just not right, and something needs to be done about it.
1: The Canadian Holocaust, you know, when you tell that, and I've met all of those people, uh, most of them are dead now, but... You know, when you tell people that little babies were thrown alive into fires and children were shot and thrown into a ditch, you're thinking, oh, that happened in Europe with the Nazis or whoever. But no, in Canada, for the last number of decades. In fact, these things continue today. They're just hidden. It's like every crime continues unless the regime in doing it is overthrown. It just changes form and location. And just a few uh, comments on that for folks who are new to this, that website, itccs.org, it used to be the website of our International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State, and it was wiped out uh, after the tribunal. And all of that information is now located at our MurderByDecree.com site under ITCCS Archives. So MurderByDecree.com is where a lot of the hard evidence of this is. Also, one of the voices on there, you may have heard, William Coombs, he was describing his brother Ernie being made to sleep among uh, and live among children who are dying of tuberculosis. It was a common method why so many of them died. Germ warfare through TB, forced TB by the Catholic Anglican United Churches. Well, William was the one who saw Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip take 10 children from the Catholic Kamloops Residential School in October 1964, and these kids were never seen again. William was going to give testimony about that at a tribunal in London, England. He was called into St. Paul's Catholic Hospital and killed prior to that, in the week prior to that, and he died from lethal injection, according to Chloe Kirker, the nurse whose testimony we have, the nurse who treated him, he had all the symptoms of arsenic poisoning, not TB, as the death certificate shows. So this show is dedicated to the memory of these children, to William Coombs. And the struggle against the people who did it continues because, and I say to people, Would you trust the very agencies that did this to children to put a needle in the arm of your child? Because Health Canada that sterilized children, that did these experiments on them for many years, they're now saying that you've got to put a needle in the arm of your child. Well, that's insanity and suicide if you go along with that, folks. And that's why the knowledge of the past is so essential for what we do today. Because if you don't remember what happened, it'll happen to you next. So... In that regard, I'm going to bring on my guest, Badria, from England, and uh, it's good to have you with us, Badria.
6: Hi, Kev. How are you doing?
1: Well, you know, these, these topics, they have to be looked at, but I, I wanted to talk to you a bit, you know, I, I gave that uh, material to newcomers and to people who who don't necessarily know right away this whole connection between the tyranny we're facing and, you know, the crimes of the past and how it's all an attack on the human race. Um, why don't you, uh, I just want to give you the chance to say something about where you live, who you are, your concerns these days, and we can jump right into the whole discussion of this phenomena we're, we're all living through, this nightmare world we're, we're all immersed in.
6: Yeah, this very surreal world. Um, well, I'm Badria. I um, live in London in the UK. Um, I guess I would broadly describe myself as an artist. I don't think it's really important what I do as a job, but I feel... Um, very deeply connected to humanity and my fellow human beings. And over the years, um, you know, uh, we witness things and wonder whether we're just repeating these cycles as human beings. And why is it that we don't learn from, from the horrors that we know that have been committed by, People such as ourselves, you know, and what, why do we keep perpetuating this, this fear cycle, this um, destructive cycle? What is it within us that um, keeps either being, you know, perpetuating it, being complicit in it, being whatever it is that's going on? But I think what's happening at the moment is all part of that, that bigger Robot. picture, really.
1: Yeah, very much. I want to ask, you know, what is it like for you living in in London? I mean, it's a huge city. What is it like to live there now with all the the COVID dictatorship happening? Like in a day, what do you see, including among the people there?
6: Um, I mean, to be honest, I think it can be quite varied. Um, I try and sort of go about my day and really try and hold Love and light within myself as I go about my day because what I witness is a variety of people um, from um, states of terror, really varying okay. states of terror, uh, which is a really horrible thing to know is happening and because we also know the consequences of what fear does to us you know people bang on about science so much nowadays but science also knows the consequences of fear within our bodies and within our minds and within our emotions and the fact that fear has been perpetuated for so many months now I just find really cruel Um, I mean I've had a few incidences where people have literally jumped out of my way and (laughs) I really feel I I feel for them because you just go my god you you, you're sort of perceiving me in some way as a as a walking weapon which I'm not and I understand the kind of physiological things that happen when you're frightened we all know that really we've all been frightened in some situation or other and we know the kind of things that we feel within ourselves and to be feeling that on a consistent level for over a long period of time takes its toll on people yeah um but other than that I also have some lovely encounters with people you know um I think for a long time, people avoided eye contact. I I feel that people are seeking out eye contact, maybe a bit more now. Um, People, I think people, whether they're conscious of it or not, are missing the human connection. We're all meant to connect with each other. We're all connected ultimately, Mm -hmm. energetically. Um, Did they
1: have uh, quarantines Yep. Uh, Like curfews. I'm Uh, sorry. Curfews.
6: Curfews. I we we're not under curfew at the moment. Although I say that, and I don't watch mainstream media, so I just kind of, (laughs) um, I just leave the house and go about my business, really. Um, And you know, I I don't actually go out that often. Really, I quite like staying quite close to home. Um. Mm. Well, it's interesting yeah. what you say
1: about energy, too, because I find that, you know, just going around without obeying any of the regulations, um, I often say to people, we don't have to worry about the state or the cops first. We have to worry about the cop in our own head. It's telling us what to do, what not to do, right? And when you break through yeah. that energetically and you stand in your own power, it's amazing. They don't touch you. There isn't any opposition. It's almost like it's an illusion.
6: Yeah, And and I feel when you are strong within yourself, people feel that energy and they, I think people naturally want to stand in their own power, in their own strength. But again, it's the fear that sort of makes that feel like it's not an easy thing to do. Right. And I think society has sort of, Um, in its many different ways, eroded collectively people's self-confidence, people's um, trust in their own inner wisdom. Um, I just feel certainly over the past couple of decades that that has really escalated. You know, we're all addicted in some way or other to to things like devices so we there's a kind of really strange ritualistic thing that i think people have got into you know checking phones doing this doing that and then it's kind of now morphed into this kind of mantra of these groups of threes of things that people are supposed to be doing you know hands face space whatever it is you know you
1: talk about Uh, ritual and and all that there's a whole magical quality to this right and um you know, that we don't see. Well, you know the old thing that 80% of the universe we can't detect with our senses anyway, and that's true about us, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Since we're energetically part of that universe. But um, one thing I wanted to ask you, have you ever been at the University College in London? Um, have you, there's a, a philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, and his body is stuffed and in, in a case there. I don't know if you've ever seen Jeremy Bentham's stuffed corpse. Have you ever gone to that? <laughs>
6: No, no, I haven't. Whereabouts is it located? Because University well, College I, I London went has a it, different. It's near
1: Bloomsbury, somewhere. I remember going in there and saying, "Who is this guy in the case?" Right? And Jeremy Bentham uh, was the founder of what's called utilitarianism. Right? It's this okay. a kind of practical English philosophy in the early eighteen hundreds. But um, uh, he invented this thing, a model for a prison. And what's really interesting is it's really the model for our society now. It's called the Panopticon which means all-seeing eye, which, in fact, is a Masonic symbol, right? The all-seeing eye. You have it on the American mm-hmm. dollar and that. But he said a prison and a society should be run whereby all of the inmates think they're being watched all the time. So the the panopticon was a circular prison, and at the very center was this tower. And the prisoners all thought they were being watched at all times, even if they weren't, and so they regulated themselves because they thought they were always being monitored. Well, I mean, look at your typical city. how many, uh, you know, TV cameras are in a block, what, 30 or 40, watching you. You know you're being monitored all the time. So basically, Mm -hmm. the dictatorship, people impose it on themselves, right? Nothing is being done to us unless we cooperate, right? And that panopticon, you should go check out Jeremy Bentham's corpse, because it's like they they (laughs) love this guy. as this great figure, but in fact, he really created the model of what we're all living through.
6: Well, I find it fascinating. Did you, I mean, is he, did you say he's stuffed? Yeah, he's... Which is really a
1: non-utilitarian. Like, what's the purpose of a? What practical use does his corpse have sitting in a case? Right? He's this little guy in a in a you know Victorian era costume, and but he had instructions that his body had to be stuffed and put on display, which seems very odd. But anyway, there's Jeremy.
6: <laughs> I mean, it, that's hilarious. I mean, is that the height of narcissism, or is it? Um, right. You know. I mean, the, the fact that you've just said that he left instructions for that to happen is quite interesting, yeah. well, isn't
1: it? <laughs> unless, unless that's a fake story, because his whole philosophy was you shouldn't, nothing has any meaning unless it has a practical purpose, you know. And um, it was kind of the the, the the ideology of the modern world, right? There's there's nothing except the value, except that which serves a certain end, right?
6: Yeah.
1: So, anyway, so I just thought what, it was
6: what, what purpose that. was he thinking he was serving? A reminder of his ideas, maybe. Probably.
1: <laughs> he, he moved in fairly upper crust circles. So, I mean, you know, I'm sure he got what he wanted. But my, my point was that that's really the model of what we're living under. And people need to realize that most of your, your fear is in your own head. Because so what if we're being monitored? I mean, uh, you know, it's... It, Who's, you got to turn it around. And, and interesting, one thing Bentham said at one point was he set up these panoptical, uh, panopticon uh, prisons in various countries, and he tried to name one up in Russia. But he said in Russia, people, uh, it didn't work because the prisoners uh, talked to each other too much, and they ignored the central tower that monitored them. They forgot about it because they were talking to each other and interacting. He said, you got to lock them away and he put a gag on them. And that's interesting that there's a... You know, you know, a muzzle or a mask on people now, literally a gag on everyone now. He said, that's how you treat people who don't cooperate with the panopticon. And right down the line, we're just imitating what he recommended, but it's only when the prisoners talk to each other and make the direct contact that their system starts breaking down. And I think that that's true about today, like you were saying.
6: I think it's very true. I mean, this whole separating people, um... I find it interesting the distance that they want people to separate by because energetically we go about sort of six feet out from our um, physical body energetically. Mm-hmm. So um, it's almost like we're just being cut off at every single opportunity. But I'm, I'm fascinated by this Fact that we all have this policeman in our head, and it, it depends on how much we allow it to take control within our own minds to how that then affects how we behave. And the thing is, like if 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 we're not doing any harm to anybody, if we really feel that we're doing the right thing and not harming anybody else, what is it that we're policing, and who is it that is? telling us what to police and why to police it. I mean, it just uh, sort of opens up more questions, really, for me than anything else.
1: It does. And I remember when we were talking earlier um, the other day, it's almost like COVID, this so-called COVID, is a projection of some inner stuff. And I want to talk a little bit about that because for the last 14 months, ever since they announced this, these regulations and that. I've been walking around without a mask. I'm not distanced. I've not done any of the things they ask. And I've never gotten sick. And I'm in the prime Mm -hmm. category. I'm in my 60s. I've got bronchial asthma. You think I would have got sick by now if this thing existed? It's almost Mm -hmm. like it's a cyber reality. It exists on the Internet. And I'm sure people are sick with a lot of things, including the stress of being over-drugged, over-medicated, living in a stressful society, being electronically bombarded. All of that takes a toll on our immune system. But is there a thing... Calls actually responsible for this, and I don't really think there is, but it's, you know, when you see people going around with a mask on, isn't that an accurate depiction of who they already are inside? They already feel muzzled. They already feel faceless, like this machine, right? This faceless machine everybody's serving in some way. And and I just think it's that um, outward projection of something that's an inner kind of psychic sickness. What do you think?
6: Well, I mean, I... Yeah, I think it's possibly a combination of a projection and lots of other things. It's it's basically, it's holding up a mirror to what we have become as a society, as a global society. I mean, we sort of, for so many years, people have talked about inclusion and all of these kind of really wonderful words are being used, but with the, the behaviour and the um, instructions seem to ask you to do the complete opposite um and so and what I feel quite a lot out there is there is a lot of confusion people aren't sure what the rules are anymore so like nobody really knows what they're supposed to be doing like should I be wearing a mask here or should I be doing that there you know and so therefore people seem to just kind of slot into something like anything for a quiet life or I'll just wear the mask because it's, you know, anything for a quiet life. I mean, I, I don't wear a mask. And other than those couple of literally two experiences of people jumping out of my way, um, I generally haven't had any other interactions with people that has been negative at all. You're, you're
1: fortunate because, I mean, it gets so extreme. People assault. I mean, I've been through this where people are screaming in my face, physically assaulting me. Um, you know, I mean, it's an, it's extreme what's going on. And, in fact, people are, I think, more and more people, a minority. It's always a minority. But they are realizing that um, things are getting much more severe with each passing day. And it's more dangerous not to do anything than to try doing something in resistance,
6: right? hmm But it's really interesting when you describe people's reactions. I have heard that that, that has occurred, and I, I have seen stuff, but I haven't personally experienced it. Um, but I feel that that is um, a sort of reaction to the fear, because on the one hand, it's them terrified because they've been told that anybody who doesn't do these various things is a potential sort of hazard to them and their health and their sa- their safety, because it's really interesting. They use the word safety, right? Um, and it's also potentially uh, a sort of, reaction because maybe they don't want to be following these rules but they feel that they have to follow these rules and here they are seeing somebody not following these rules right. and well, that's, that's, somehow-
1: a, that's the old that's the old condition oh. i mean we get that from you know that we live in a society we're expected to defer to an external authority we've had that since childhood but um mm-hmm. what I, you know we talked at the beginning about the connection between this kind of political tyranny repression and genocide and Genocide is aimed now at the entire human race. the measures that they they aimed at native people or other minorities now they 're deploying against all of us and it 's really I think about the eradication of our humanity you know I mean when you look at the technology involved in microchipping and all of that it 's like they really are integrating everybody or trying to integrate get everyone to integrate themselves into this huge corporate single machine that 's going to run and is running the planet more and more and that's a kind of genocide that we haven't experienced yet. That, that's total. And I think that's the mask in this, this agenda has slipped and people are seeing that more and more.
6: But the, the I mean, in many ways, the way they've gone about it is, is genius <laughs> because it's encouraging people to voluntarily... Do things that they might not otherwise do. Yep. Um, and that's, that's always a... go on. Yeah, Kev. that's always
1: the most. That's always the most effective way of control if it's voluntary. Um, you know, so it, it's it's not surprising. Like these scenarios are being happening so many times in history. Um, I like that quote from I think it was Harry Truman said, "The only thing new in the world is the history you didn't know about," and. These, mm-hmm. these methods are tried and true. Um, you know, like Freud talked about it in his book, Civilization and His Discontents, about people's suppression of their natural impulses to live together in society makes everybody neurotic to some degree. And rulers mm-hmm. know how to exploit that neurosis and appeal to the fear, you know. Um, so, I mean, that's part of it for sure.
6: Also, the, the fear, like you say, makes people suppress their own inner truth. So they feel, and also that's also been sort of ramped up in the sense, um, the way society is sort of um, been going over the past few years, certainly sort of feeling like you can't say anything in case you offend somebody. It's like people get offended about so many different things, just a different point of view. And people are too afraid to um, express a different point of view because, they don't want to be shot down in flames, or they don't want to be challenged. And I just find it really fascinating that people don't want to ask the questions or don't seem to want to ask the questions. I mean, I'm generalizing here, because that isn't the case with everybody. But a lot of people don't seem to be just asking basic questions, like, why does that bunch of scientists have a different point of view to this bunch of scientists. I'd like to hear both arguments and weigh up well, what they have to say and then come to a decision for myself.
1: When would people ever have the opportunity to think critically in the way we're raised? I mean, I remember that study um, The uh, um, one of the societies in England at the time of World War I um, Tavistock Institute they did a study mm-hmm. and they, they found that 85% people, if they read a headline in the newspaper, will believe it automatically because it's in print. They don't say mm-hmm. who wrote it, what was his bias, what's their interest, or are they trying to make a point? No, they just accept it as gospel. It's there. Mm-hmm. That figure doesn't change. And, um, you know, that's the way someone described a society as an iceberg. Most of it's underwater because the mass of people are trained that way, right, to just be the workers, and they're not supposed mm-hmm. to think. That's you know, the educated class, the managers of society, you know, we're the ones who are supposed to do the thinking. So it it to turn society on its head like that and say, no, we people who for thousands of years have been programmed to just obey an external authority, it's kind of a hard stretch for a lot of people. And it's not their fault, it's just the way we've been raised, right?
6: Mm-hmm. But it, that also links into responsibility, doesn't it? It's like we've also um I think collectively in many ways uh, found ways of absolving ourselves of responsibility, you know, Oh, it's, it's, it's because so-and-so told me to do it or it's not my fault. It was, you know, I, those were the instructions that I was given rather than people holding their hands up when they feel that they've made a mistake or holding their hands up and saying, I'm not really sure about that. I don't. I don't like the sound of that. Or I don't. Just questioning things, Um, being true to their inner inner moral compass, inner ethical compass. We all have it. We all really deep down know right from wrong, just innately. I feel.
1: I think we do. Um, It's interesting, though. It's it's um, this is so. Familiar to me, like in the campaign when we were trying to bring this truth of, you know, the crimes we heard earlier, the people's description of the killing and torture of Native children right here in Canada. Um, yeah. When you brought that out, the hostility and outrage from Canadians, you know, so-called white mainstream Canadians, was just over the top. I mean, we were physically assaulted. I remember we'd often stand, me and and mostly the rest of the people on our protest were all Native. They're all survivors. We'd be standing outside... Catholic and Anglican United Churches, and we would get physically assaulted. People would spit on us. Um, you know, just the outrage that we were challenging their idol, and it, we're asking them to think, to realize, like, look at what you're part of. And it's so analogous to right now. I mean, this is so deja vu for me. I'm not. I, I, I find personally, I'm not suffering the trauma that a lot of people are. That like, what happened to our world? Well, I mean, hello. The, <laughs> When you live through, when you're a targeted individual and you live through the society, you see it for what it is, and it mm-hmm. isn't surprising to me. But people are still in a state of shock, and I think that's part of the difficulty in 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 getting them uh, either taking responsibility or or taking action, right?
6: Yeah, but it has to go through phases, though, doesn't it? You know, it's like when I, I suppose it's when you're trying to sort of sort through personal traumas as well. Um, uh, you know you can be in denial for a certain amount of time for 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 whatever reason for protection quite often, actually protecting your own feelings, so it's easier to deny something or numb it or do whatever you do yeah. and it feels like that is happening on a sort of mass scale at the moment it's, mm. it, it's too awful to contemplate like the description that you're saying about the, the treatment that you've had people spitting on you people can it's too much to bear for a lot of people to think that these things have actually been done by fellow human beings so they attack because that keeps yeah. that information away somewhere somehow in 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 sure. their sort of um being but yeah. you can't run away from this stuff Forever, and this stuff is—we're we, realizing it's much more common. It's not—they're not just isolated incidents here and there. This stuff goes on everywhere, globally. You know, well, it's human beings behaving in appalling ways.
1: And you know, your point about—you um, know—this whole cult that started—it's really we mentioned this when we we're talking a cult of cleanliness and pollution. And it's mm-hmm. interesting if you look in history. Action, uh, genocidal regimes have always invoked these measures against to target a group and wipe them out using public health rhetoric. When they set up the Indian uh, hospitals and so-called schools that wiped out so many natives here, the church society said, these natives are dirty. We have to protect ourselves from their tuberculosis, ignoring the fact that we introduced TB onto them. And mm-hmm. on that grounds, they locked them all up in these schools and hospitals. Uh, Hitler, talked about Jews and Slavs and political opponents as vermin, as, as we had to do a social cleansing. And and so mm-hmm. it's all the language and ideology of cleanliness and purity, and there's a pollution and a disease threatening us. And it's, like you say, being so internalized that we don't even realize, a lot of us don't even realize we're, we're in that mindset, but it's really a genocidal agenda and, and way of thinking.
6: Yeah, I mean... Um, I think I might have read this out to you the other day, but there's a quote. I've seen it written in in different sort of wording, but um, this is apparently from the Nuremberg trial of 1945. Hermann Goering was asked the question, how did you convince the German people to accept all this? And apparently his reply was it was easy and had nothing to do with Nazism. It had to do with human nature. It can be done in a Nazi regime, communist, socialist, monarchy or democracy. The only thing you need to do to enslave people is to scare them. If you can think of a way to scare people, you can do whatever you want with them. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, that says it all, really, because, I mean, when all this stuff happened last year, I mean, if we were really genuinely in in a pandemic, wouldn't you want to reassure people that, We're going to find a way together rather than absolutely terrify people, which is going to reduce their immune system, not, you know, make them feel like they can't get through it, make them lose hope. I mean, all of these things that really we know have detrimental effects. Um,
1: Well, I mean, I think that, you know, I've experienced that on the ground a lot over the last year. We've been trying to build these common law Republic Assemblies and a lot of people responded and they loved coming together and being unmasked and sitting and talking freely But then I think when we got to the point of saying Now you can pass your own laws and enforce them in the community and break away from this criminal regime Very few people were willing to do it a lot of them started dropping away because it meant letting go of fear with responsibility and looking their fear in the face and there seemed to be a dependency on their own fear and conformity to the status quo and that's hard to break in most people it seems
6: yeah because it it's it's a scary thing to forge your own path and 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 go a different way because ultimately people want to belong they want to feel accepted and you know people's self-esteem has been so eroded over the decades that they want to belong to a particular group and they the idea of them walking as as a lone person is terrifying you know well, that's
1: why we, we build these assemblies as alternatives we, we like I agree with you exactly it's not about one person taking on the system that never works and in fact the system likes that because it can target individuals and scare the rest by locking them away mm-hmm. we need to build a counterculture um, alternative institutions you know common law courts their own sheriffs that's part of the agenda of why we push these collective responses so much, right? And I think that mm-hmm. that's, like you say, something people can join and belong to and, and find what's real again. And um, Badger, I just noticed the time. We've only got three minutes left. This hour goes really okay. quick. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you being on. It's great to hear your voice and, and your insights. We'll have to do it again. Um, any final words okay. you want to share with people?
6: Um, I just feel that people Need to realize that they have all their answers within themselves. That we have to find the courage within ourselves to, to speak when we feel something isn't right. It's not the easiest thing to do, but that's the only way that we can get through this. Um, Absolutely. You know, we cannot thank be you. complicit in people's lies anymore. Um, thank you, thank you very right. much.
5: You
1: i really appreciate sorry about that um the clock is ticking here but anyway um i appreciate you being on friend and we'll talk to you real soon thank you so much
6: perfect you take care my friend
1: yes bye
6: for now bye-bye
1: that was Badria from london england and to all of our english listeners the home of the common land Rally, we know there's a Republic common law movement in England, too. We can send that information to you if you write to us, uh, Republic National Council at ProtonMail.com. And don't forget, MurderByDecree.com, RepublicOfKanada.ca. We're here every Sunday. We're in a way to actively train and organize people to create the new society within the shell of the old. And we'll have more about that next week. And we're going to close on a really good song by Phil Oakes. He was a a good man from the 60s, a folk singer who uh, was killed in the 1970s, but his spirit and voice carries on. It's kind of a message to all of us. When I'm gone, we can't do it after we're gone. We can't do anything good after we're gone, folks, so we've got to do it now. That's our message. That's how we overcome the deadly doer of political tyranny and genocide. And don't forget, folks, we will overcome. We're doing it all the time. This is Cabanon at Eagle Strong Voice. Stay strong. We'll be back soon.